Thank you all my brothers here on the platform with me for Brother Andreas and all the other gentlemen that have led us in worship today. It's good to see all of you here. Last week I didn't get a chance to join you for church. Uh, we were uh, hung up in traffic for a little bit and coming back from Japar, we just couldn't get here in time for, for church. So I apologize for not being here uh, this, this past Sunday, but it's good to be with you today. Before we get into today's sermon, let me just um, give thanks to everyone who helped put our youth retreat together. Uh, if you don't know, uh, we took the young people, our youth group, to Japara for a weekend retreat called United. It was all about learning to be united with Christ and also be to, united, to, to be united with each other as we grow in our Christian walk and life. And um, it was an incredible weekend. I am so glad that we had that weekend retreat. And um, I, I even told the young people, when Sunday came and we all went to our separate homes, I actually missed all of your kids. I really did. Uh, and so, you know, on, on that weekend, I think we had 25 young people join us. And then after that weekend, our very first connect group, which was this past Friday night, we had 31 kids join us for Connect. And so I believe God is doing something in our young people. And I said to them on Friday, many times when we're at church, many times people say things like, the youth, they are the future of our church. But you know, in many ways I disagree. Because the young people, they are the church right now. They are the church today. We're not waiting for them to one day get involved in the things of God, to one day get involved with ministry. No, even the children that are, that are in the Sunday school program right now, they are the church. You are the church. We are the church of God. Amen? And we're so thankful for what God is doing. And let me just say thank you, of course, to my wife, uh, Hira, to Aji and Gale, to Frank and Ina, to uh, Agun and Vera, and uh, also to uh, my daughter, Yaya, who put all of this together. And, and even we, we, we appointed four young people as team leaders. And who was that? Ian, Oscar, Amelia, and Colleen. Is that you, Colleen? Yeah. So, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for all that you did. And um, I think we're ready for another retreat soon. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, with that, let's go into our Bibles. And turn to, we're going to actually look at two portions of Scripture today. Today's sermon is entitled, Beneath the Surface. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. This is the next section we're now coming to in our Roman series. And then after that, we're going to read from Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. And, and the reason why I'm doing this is because I believe that Mark chapter 10, the story that we're going to read is a wonderful illustration of what Paul is about to teach us in Romans chapter 7. So instead of staying only in Romans today, we're going to read Romans, see a few points real quick, and then we're going to jump to the story of Mark. So if you'll find, first of all, Romans chapter 7, I'll go ahead and read both of these one after the other. So if you can find that in your Bibles, Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 12. And in honor of our great God and Savior, 
and in honor of his work, can we stand together? As you stand, let me also remind you that today is Communion Sunday, so if you haven't received those communion emblems when you came in, just signal down Hendrick in the back and make sure you have that for after the sermon. All right, let's begin. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Now let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, Take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Amen. You may be seated. Beneath the surface, let me just, first of all, point out some things that Paul has said concerning the law of God, the Ten Commandments, if you will, from Romans 7, the text that we read today. When you read those verses, you, you first come to point number one, that the law is not sinful. Last time we talked about the law, we talked about how we are divorced from the law, and now we belong to a new husband. And you might get the idea, well then, if, if we need to divorce ourselves, or, or actually die to the law, and be married to Christ, well then, that must mean the law is a bad thing, and we want nothing to do with it. Paul says, no. No, on the contrary, he says in our last verse from Romans 7 that the law itself is holy, it is just, and it is good. It is holy because it reveals to us the nature of God. God is holy, and that's declared to us through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are also just. They are fair. And you know, the law of God doesn't care what color you are, what culture you are from, if you're a man or a woman, whatever language you speak, the law is the law. And it points to us a life of holiness. The law is holy. It is just. And Paul says it is good. 
Why is the law good? Well, I'll get to that in point number two here, but in point number one still, the law is good because the law points us to a Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the law that teaches me I need to be saved and forgiven of my many sins. But in point number two, the, the law is good also because it reveals what is beneath the surface in all of us. The law is just not about your outward actions. It's about what's in your heart. And Paul says that the law revealed to him that inside of him, deep in his heart, was the sin called covetousness. To covet is to desire with lust. It's to be obsessed with something. It's to be so attracted or so attached to something, you've just got to have it. And that's covetousness and that sin doesn't begin with what you do. It's begin, it begins with what's inside of you. These evil desires and the law of God, it cuts right through your flesh, right through your soul, and right to your heart. And it reveals, reveals to you even the evil thoughts and the desires that you have inside. For Paul, it showed him his covetousness. Paul himself said, this is what I was guilty of to have lust, to be obsessed with something. And when the law comes to us, what does sin do? Well, those evil desires that are in us, there's something about the law that causes those evil desires to want to grow and to be fruitful. That sin becomes exceedingly sinful when we know the law. And you know, this has happened in all of our lives. When I was a young boy, I used to go fishing with my cousin in North Carolina. And on Saturdays, we would walk down the road, down to the dead-end street. We would walk through the homes that were there and into the woods. And if you continue about a half a mile in the woods, we came to the river, and there we would fish. And I noticed as we were walking back and forth, one day I noticed that on a tree was a sign posted, no trespassing, that it was private property, and they did not allow anybody to trespass into that property. That was the law. Do not trespass. But I, being 10 years old, saw that sign, and I wondered, why can't I trespass? And who's going to tell me I can't walk beyond that one tree? And what happens if I do? What are they going to do about it? And after I thought about it, I said to my cousin, let's just go. And we went into that no trespass territory. There was something about that law that made me want to disobey it. And how many of you, not that there are strict speed limits in Indonesia, but if you're driving somewhere like me, like in America, and I see that the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, the moment I see that sign, in my heart I'm thinking, okay, so that should mean I can go 77 miles an hour. And that's exactly what I do. One time I was going 77 and I increased it to 80. And suddenly I passed by a cop who was pulled over on the side of the road checking speed limits. I went past him at 80 miles an hour and he never came out, never came after me. So I thought, well, I guess I can increase it to 82 miles an hour. And I did that. There's something about a law when we see it. There's something in us that tries to figure out how can I go and break that law? It happens all through life, including with the Ten Commandments. 
The sin nature in us wants to rise up in rebellion against God's law. Point number three is that the law does exactly this. It points to us our sin. It reveals it to us. The law is like a mirror that shows us how evil and sinful we are. But what about you in the morning? When you go into the bathroom, if you have a mirror, a handheld mirror, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and you kind of see the rough marks on your, on your beard perhaps, you need a good trim, you see the dirt on your face, what do you do after that? Do you go into the shower with your mirror and scrub yourself with the mirror? Of course not. The mirror can't clean you. It can only show you what's wrong. And the same comes with the law. It can show you your sin, but it can't cleanse you. It can't wash you. It cannot save you. There's only one who can do that, and his name is Jesus. And Paul will say in Romans, what the law could not do, God has done through Jesus Christ. We are forgiven through Jesus. And so that's basically what Paul is talking about in the verses that we just read. But now I want to direct our attention to Mark chapter 10, and I want to show you how this story really illustrates everything that we just said about what we read in Romans. So let's do that. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Let's look carefully at this story. Again, the title of the sermon is Beneath the Surface. We're going to look at this young man and his conversation with Jesus. And we're going to see, number one, a good beginning. Number two, a deep look. Number three, a sad ending. Let's begin with number one, a good beginning. Mark 10, verse 17. Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? One came running and knelt before him. We don't know much about this man. But according to the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, according to Mark, we learn that this is a rich man. According to Matthew, we learn that he's a young man. And according to Luke, we learn that he's a ruler. And so we call him the rich young ruler. And that's what we know about him. He had some level of power and authority in his community. He was a leader, maybe for the synagogue or maybe for a certain group of people in his community. He was a, a successful man, and even at a young age, he's already a leader, and he's very wealthy. Now already, this is the kind of guy that I like. I got no problems with him so far. In fact, I would love to see some of our young people grow up to have an influence like this man does, to be young, yet hardworking, successful, and prosperous. I think any of us parents would want that for our young people. But on this particular day, he comes running to Jesus. And I ask myself, why? What's going on? What's happening that he comes running to Jesus? Something urgent. What was happening in his life that caused him to be in a hurry to find Jesus 
and kneel before him. Well, it could have been that despite having an already successful life and riches, apparently, something is stirring inside of his heart. Something is stirring inside of him to obtain something that he knows he cannot gain with his money and with his influence. We find out that his desire is to know something about eternal life. Did he figure out that eternal life is something that you cannot buy? Or it could be that this young man already thought that he was good with God, that everything's fine. He's proven himself worthy. And now he's just looking for someone to confirm what he thinks. And he goes to Jesus, perhaps hoping that Jesus will agree and say, yes, young man, well done. You have merited eternal life. Well, whatever the case is, I call this a good beginning. Why? Well, for the simple fact that he ran to Jesus. And anyone, no matter what you're going through, anyone who runs to Jesus in time of need, oh, that's a good beginning, isn't it? That's a real good beginning. Now, yes, you need to be ready that when you go to Jesus, he's going to tell you the truth. He's going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you're hoping or you want to hear. And you always have to be ready to listen to what he says. And you have to be ready to see what he shows you. But isn't that what we do in time of need? We run to Jesus. And my greatest encouragement to all of you, some of you I have no idea, most of you I have no idea what's going on in your life. But I can tell you this, if you're in trouble today, you must go to Jesus. Amen. A few Friday nights ago, I was able to attend the Friday night connect at Felix and, and Thea's home. And after our devotion time, we got into sort of a question and answer period. And there are so many questions being asked and so many wonderful questions. Everyday questions that we probably all have about the Bible, about Christian living, about what should we do in this situation or that situation. Some of the questions were funny. Some of the topics were fun. And there were other questions that were serious and needed a serious discussion. But the one thing I loved about it all was that there was this overall attitude among everybody in the group. And the attitude was with all of our questions and with all of our concerns, what we need to do is take it to Jesus. Amen. Take it to Jesus and let's see what he says about what I'm doing, what I'm going through, where I'm going. And I know with no doubt in my mind that for that Friday Connect group with all those young couples that are in that Connect and those of you that see me here today, if you go to Jesus, you will never be disappointed. He's always there to help in time of need. And I truly believe that when they said that they want to take it to Jesus, that makes me as a pastor so thrilled and happy. Because I may not have much answers for you. Even your spouse may not be able to answer some of the things that you're going through. But I know if you go to Jesus and you trust in him, he will show you the way. And I'm excited for any of you that have learned to go to Jesus. Do you know with Jesus, we have what is called a relationship. Do you know that? 
What you have with Jesus is a relationship. Now I'm all for trying to figure out God. I'm all for it. I'm all for finding a mysterious thing in the Bible and wanting to know exactly what it means, exactly what it's saying. If you go to my library at home, you'll see all kinds of books on doctrine and theology and all these things. I love, I love exploring. I love trying to figure out the answers to questions. But you know what's more important than just intellect? What's more important than trying to follow logic and trying to figure out things? Do you know what's more important than that? Having a relationship with Jesus Christ. What's more important than knowing about Jesus? How about knowing Jesus? Amen? And for those of you that know Christ and you search for him, I have no doubt that he will show you the way and teach you the way you should go. Oh, I'm so happy of the relationship that we have with God. Young man, this is a good beginning. You've gone to Jesus, and I can't think of a better thing. And he goes to Jesus, and here's what he says. Good teacher, what must I do, or what shall I do, that I may inherit eternal life? Good teacher. He may not know everything about Jesus, but one thing he has observed is that there's something really good and wonderful about Jesus. He would say, like all the people did, who watched Jesus, that he does all things well. The New Testament testimony of Jesus was that he went about doing good. And this is why so many people were drawn to him. The poor, the leper, the prostitute, the rich man, the politician, everyone, man, woman, from every walk of life, they were drawn to him because they knew there was goodness in him. He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Oh, young man, there's your first mistake right there. It's in your question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Quiz time. For those of you that have been with me in the book of Romans so far, how are we saved? Is it by doing the works or believing in Jesus? Believing in Jesus. Amen. What's wrong with the question? He thinks there's something he must do. There's a work he must accomplish to inherit eternal life. Oh, young man, you are mistaken. You are wrong. Just like when all the people in the Gospel of John said to Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? What must you do? Jesus said, believe in the one whom God sent. Our salvation is not about us doing. It's about us believing. Do you know that Jesus did all the doing that needed to be done? Amen? And so what's left to believe and trust in what he has done for us? Having eternal life is never based on doing. It's always based on believing and trusting in Jesus. This question, it leads me to think that perhaps this young man believed that since he already had a lot going for him, a lot of good stuff happening, so God must be pleased 
God must be blessing him and approving of his life. And so now it's, it just comes down to what? What else, Lord? What else is there? What, if anything, do I still need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus is about to answer him. But first he wants to tackle one thing. He wants to tackle the fact that this young man called him good. And Jesus wants to know why he called him good. Look at verse 18. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. Why do you call me good, young man? Am I good because you compare me to everyone else? Is that what you do, young man? Do you compare yourself to everyone else? And you believe you are better, which means you must be good, and God must be pleased with you. Is that what you're doing to me? Are you calling me good simply because you compare me with others? Or, young man, or am I indeed good as God is good? In other words, Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? You just called me good. And we know that only God is good. So young man, if I am good and only God is good, then who am I? Who do you say that I am? Am I just a good teacher? Or am I God in the flesh? Just like Paul says about the law, that it is holy and just and good. Jesus is holy. He is just and he is good because he is God. Amen. The door of salvation, it begins to open for us when we know the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? If you've come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, oh, salvation doors just flung open and the Lord welcomes you in to believe and to trust in him. Jesus answers him with this question, why do you call me good? And then maybe there's a moment of pause in the discussion, Jesus allowing the young man to absorb everything he just said. And now Jesus takes this young man to the law. This young man who maybe compares himself with others and thinks that he's good based on his neighbors and the styles of living he's seen in his own society. So Jesus takes him to the law, which is the perfect thermometer to see, are you indeed good? So Jesus takes him to the law and he says this in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your, your mother. Now notice Jesus doesn't list out all the Ten Commandments. If you're counting, you'll see that. Jesus does, though, concentrate on the commandments in regards to our relationship with people, whether it's our mother and father or our neighbor. He concentrates on those first. All these have to do with our relationship with people. These laws help us answer the question, do we love our neighbor? Do we? Do we truly love our neighbor? 
The young man gave a very quick and a very confident response. Verse 20, he answered and said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Do you notice he calls him teacher, deliberately dropping off that word good. And it shows you what this man thinks about Jesus. I don't think he believes Jesus is God. Yes, teacher, I love my neighbor. I've done all these things. I'm good to go. Do you know who he sounds like? He sounds like a younger Paul. Paul would say the same kinds of things. He would say to the church in Philippi that according to the law, when he lived as a Pharisee, as a religious Jew, that according to the law, he was blameless. Yeah, externally speaking. In other words, just like all the Jews, he would look at the law and see, thou shalt not commit adultery. All right, simple. Just keep your hands to yourself. Don't get involved with any other women or men. Stay committed to your wife. Keep your hands to yourself and you'll be good. Or do not commit murder. Again, keep your hands to yourself, then it's no problem. You won't hurt anybody. You won't be violent. Just keep to yourself. But of course, what did Paul tell us in Romans? He tells us that the law goes way beyond the external actions. And it drives right to your heart. And it was the law that exposed that in Paul, there was an unhealthy, sinful obsession with something. Something. We may not know exactly what it was, but it was called covetousness, an evil lust inside of Paul. Maybe the fruit of it did not come out. Nevertheless, it was still sin dwelling in Paul's heart. And you know, Jesus taught us about the heart of the law. It's Jesus that said, when it comes to adultery, men, the moment you look at a woman and you desire her, you have already committed adultery. When it comes to thou shalt not murder, when you hate somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. Covetousness is the one commandment that goes deep beneath the surface. Do you know it's covetousness? It's your evil desires and passions that will end up giving fruit to adultery, giving fruit to lying, giving fruit to stealing. It all begins with evil desires in your heart. And so the law looks deep into all of us. And for this young man, Jesus is now going to look deep inside as well. A deep look. Verse 21, then Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Just as the law looks right through your soul and into your heart, and it reveals those wicked things inside of you, when Jesus looked at this man, he was looking into his heart. He knew what was on his mind. He saw things in this young man that the young man did not see, or at least didn't want to admit to. Jesus saw things inside of him that nobody else saw. He saw sin dwelling within. With one look, Jesus knew what was beneath the surface of this man. 
And do you know what I also believe Jesus saw? What Jesus knew? I also believe that Jesus knew in just a few minutes this young man will respond by rejecting Jesus and walking away as an unbeliever. Jesus knew that this would happen. Jesus looks at him. He knows all these things about him. He knows he's about to walk away in his unbelief. And yet Mark tells us that when Jesus was looking at him, he what? Loved him. He looked at him, saw the sin, saw the rejection that was coming, and yet he loved him. I'll tell you this. Anyone in the world who rejects Jesus Christ, it will never be because Jesus didn't love them. Never. And it will never be because they can't be saved. It'll be because they won't be saved. They will not have him reign over them. It'll never be because Jesus does not love. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And that one phrase ministers to my heart. To know that Jesus still looks into my life. And I know what he sees. I know it. And yet he still loves me. To me, that is a love like I've never known before. When we were at the retreat with the young people this weekend, my favorite moment of the retreat. Now, if you ask the kids, they may tell you all kinds of things that they enjoyed about it, but my favorite moment of it all was on Saturday night after Ian and Oscar gave a great devotion really left us something to think about. And then I decided, let's all just bow our heads and pray. And everybody just pray to the person that's on your right and on your left. And as you pray, I'm just going to go around and bless each of you. You don't have to listen to me. You, you don't have to try to pay attention to what I'm saying. Just pray. Just spend time with the Lord and let me just come and bless you. And I intended on literally just blessing each young person. I don't know, maybe it'll take three minutes for me to get around to every person. How long did that prayer meeting take? It was several, several minutes. 30 minutes or more? And what I, what I intended to do quickly, there was so much to pray about. But here was my favorite moment. As I'm making my way around each young person, after a few minutes, I notice I can hear sobbing. I hear crying. And as I would come to a young man or a young girl and I kneel next to him in front of them, as I'm praying for them, I can see teardrops splashing on the floor. And you know what I thought? Before I even come to a young person and pray, do you know who's already there? The Lord. Before I say anything, do you know who's already speaking to them in their hearts? The Lord. And I don't know if he was talking to some of them about sin. Maybe some of them needed healing or needed some comfort. Maybe some of them have fears about the future, whatever it was. I don't know because I can't see what's inside. But the Lord does. And the Lord was there. And before I could even get there, he's already there ministering to them. Those teardrops that were falling were such a beautiful blessing. That's what the Lord 
does. He looks into us. He knows exactly what you need. And if you will stay, and if you will remain patient and listen, the Lord will minister greatly to your heart. Again, I encourage you to always be ready to listen to what he says and to see what he shows you. And I also want to say this to all of you, not just you young people, but to your parents as well. Don't ever grow tired of getting alone with Jesus and saying, Lord, look deep within. Lord, here's what I need, and I come to you to surrender. Don't ever get tired of it. Because as many times as you do, the Lord will be there to minister in your time of need. Amen? Amen. Oh, I love the deep look of Jesus. To the man who claims that he loves his neighbor perfectly, just like the law commands, Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. Don't tell me you love them. Show it. Don't tell the poor people they are blessed. Show them your blessing. Sell what you have. Give it to them. And when you do, young man, you will have treasure in heaven. Because not only will I reward you for your sacrifice, but there will be souls in heaven because you ministered to them. Oh, what a treasure that is. Go ahead, young man. Do these things. Jesus says one thing you lack. Do you know what Jesus wasn't saying? Was that it wasn't like he was saying, young man, there's just one thing. Oh, you're doing everything so well. You get an A, but if you want an A plus, just sell some things and give it to the poor. And then, just that one thing, and then you're good to go. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is showing him that this one thing, this one thing called covetousness, this one thing that he loved his wealth and possessions so much, he would not dare separate himself from it. Jesus showed him that that covetousness, it will destroy your life because sin will kill you and it will destroy you. Even if it seems like just that one thing, yeah, that one thing. James, in the book of James chapter 1, he talks about how we're all drawn away because of the evil desires that are in us. The things that we covet, it draws us away to sin. And James says, do not be fooled. Do not be deceived. Because that sin is coming to grow in you. And once it is full grown, it will bring death. Don't be deceived. And to this young man, Jesus is revealing to him, you don't really love the way you claim to love, do you? You don't love perfectly the way the law commands you, do you? And not only that, not only that, but the worst part of this man's covetousness, it wasn't just the fact he wasn't willing to give his money to the poor. That's not what would keep him out of heaven. What will keep him out of heaven is that covetousness, covetousness is going to cause him to say, I would rather desire the world than Jesus. I would rather be friends of the world than Jesus. And I would rather keep what I have than to lose it for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
That will indeed keep this man out of heaven. Let's come to the last point as we close. A sad ending. And it is sad indeed that we have to come to this kind of ending. It started out with such a good beginning. Jesus has ministered so wonderfully into this man's heart. He's showing this young man that he's a sinner, that he needs to be saved. And yet we come to a sad ending. In verse 21, Jesus says, Now I have told you to go and sell your stuff, give it to the poor, gather your treasures up in heaven, and one more thing, young man, one more thing. Come, take up your cross, and follow me. Come and walk with me. Choose this narrow way. Follow me to eternal life. You want eternal life? You want to be saved? Then come and die with me. Come and die with me that you may live with me. If this man were to walk just a few more days with Jesus, he would see Jesus literally go to the cross to give his life for the sins of the world. And if only this man in his heart would choose to follow Christ, he would be changed within. He would be healed and forgiven and given eternal life. Nevertheless, we end with this. But. But can be such a sad word. But means that there's a change in direction. In other words, the invitation has come. Follow me. Die with me. Be buried and be raised to a brand new life where now my life is in you. Come and follow me. And instead, the direction changes. But he was sad at his word. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Again, he was not willing to part with his obsession, to part ways with his lust in order to follow Jesus. Do you know what that means? It means that this man is the only man we find in Scripture who came to Jesus, knelt before him, and walked away unchanged. What a sad ending. When he walks away, he's walking himself back under the law where all he will find is guilt and judgment and condemnation. When the Bible says that he went away or that he was sad at the word of Jesus and went away sorrowful, that word sad, there's a picture of that word. The picture is gloominess. It means that there are dark clouds coming. It means that a storm is coming. When this man went away from Jesus, he's walking into the gloom of life, into the darkness, into the storm. And you know all those stirrings that brought him to Jesus? The stirring in his heart to know what it means to have everlasting life? How can I obtain it? Now that he's walking back into the gloom of life, although that stirring may keep on going, he will never find a way to satisfy it. Never. Because he left the only true Savior. He's left the only way of salvation. 
into the darkness he goes. Now, I don't know what happens to this man at the end of life. Maybe later on he found Jesus and gave his life. I don't know. Or maybe we can just see how the story ends and picture this man walking back into his darkness. And if that's the case, one day he's going to appear before God, like all of us will. And he'll be there for judgment. And what will he say in that day? What will be his reason to enter into eternal life? Do you think he's going to say, God, I had great possessions? That will mean nothing in that day. Do you know what that man's going to remember at the judgment seat? He's going to remember that day I met with Jesus and I walked away from him. That will be what's on his mind. And that will be why he does not have everlasting life in heaven. With that, can I ask the musicians to come as we are going to prepare to partake in communion with the Lord. Before we do, let me encourage you, right now is one of those wonderful times as we are about to remember all that Jesus has done for us and the love and the goodness he has displayed for us at the cross. And when we remember those things, it is a perfect time to say, Lord, take a deep look. Take a deep look. Is there something in my life that I am not serious about? Is there an evil desire within me that I think I can handle? But Lord, you know it's going to bring destruction. Or maybe you're here today and you want the Lord to take a deep look and say, Lord, I need help. I need help. And I don't know what to do. The Lord is here. Amen? The Lord is here. Let's all bow our heads as we prepare for communion.